I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7 to do that this morning. Gospel Luke chapter 7. I want to set the context for this passage of Scripture as the last discussion that we'll have on the life of John the Baptist. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed going through this study. I've wanted for a couple of years to do this and it just has never hit as the appropriate time and the, the beginning of this year seemed like the right time to address this study and the life of this person that for me is an, a fascinating man because he stands at the crossroads of the Old Testament and the New Testament because I hope most of us understand that even though the Gospels are part of the New Testament, they are really part of the Old Testament up until the time of the crucifixion of Christ. They are part of the Old Covenant period and John the Baptist is this in a sense, quintessential prophet who stands at this crossroads, at this place where the cross of Christ is being erected. John is the one, he's the last of all the prophets pointing to Jesus. All the Old Testament prophets find their fulfillment in the life of John. And he is kind of the prophet par excellence. He is the prophet that Matthew 11 says all the Old Testament prophets anticipated. That prophet comes across a tragic end, a life that in many ways from a human perspective, we would say ends as a disaster from a human perspective. The account of his disaster is fully explained in Matthew chapter 14. I'll just give you a quick summary of it. Herod of Galilee, the region that John ministered in, takes a journey to Rome to visit his brother, who is the king in that region. As he's there, he seduces his brother's wife, begins an affair with her, comes back to Galilee, fires his wife, brings his brother's wife as his new wife. Now, you are the leading spokesman for morality in that region. What do you do with that? Oh, we don't get involved in politics. Nice protective answer. Well, we don't want to take any unnecessary risk. What does John do with that? John has access and uses that access to go to Herod and to share a message that would be viewed at best as unpopular and by many, I am sure, unwise. He goes to Herod and says, Herod, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Speaking too clearly for his own safety, but fulfilling the directive of God for his life. He was a prophet. His job as a prophet was to con confront immorality when it occurred in his nation amongst his people for that Matthew 14 tells us John is thrown into prison he is put on the sidelines from John's perspective he's sitting on the bench when he would love to be out on the field playing the game of life for the glory of God and as he languages in a prison probably called Machiris down by the Dead Sea isolated from everyone else John's mind begins to turn on the events of his life and on this outcome that is at best awkward 
certainly unexpected and certainly for John, frustrating. That storyline brings us to the beginning or to, to Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. Jesus is out doing ministry. John, the precursor to Christ, is on the bench. He's sidelined in prison. Verse 18, his disciples tell him about all these things. That is the work that Jesus is doing. Calling two of his disciples, he said to them, he sent them, I'm sorry, to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for someone else? Are you the one to come or should we look for someone else? What's happening here? Well, the first thing you need to notice in this storyline is this. The obedience of John the Baptist to the calling of God in his life has, and if you're taking notes, this is where you fill in, the obedience to God had led to difficult circumstances for John. He's in prison. Folks, here's a hard truth from the Christian life. Sometimes your obedience and faithfulness to God will lead you to difficult circumstances. And when that happens, you will not say, you know what, this is exactly what I expected to happen when I obeyed God. No, you're going to say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, as I say that, I realize this. Some trouble that we, as experience, that we experience as Christians is a result of our stupidity. It's a result of our sin. It's a result of our foolishness. For John, that was not the case. For John, he was fulfilling his role as a prophet. His job was to speak to the culture truth in spite of the consequence. And his obedience has led to difficult circumstances. Second thought that begins to emerge when I read this text Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask this question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Well, that is an intriguing question. Because it causes you to think, why is John asking that question when with absolute confidence... He pointed to Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God. How many of you think that John was, when he did that, was vacillating or was struggling with questions about the identity of Jesus? I didn't think most of us would say, certainly John was not struggling with the identity of Jesus. He had seen the verifying sign of the Spirit of God fall on the Son of God. He said, that's the one I saw the Spirit of God descend upon. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And yet John, in the midst of his difficult circumstance is wrestling. Leads me to the second principle that emerges in this story. Difficult circumstances, even in the life of the most faithful servant of God, can lead to what? Doubt. It can lead us to have questions about the calling and direction of God in our life. For John, certainly the circumstances are not favorable to encouraging faith. He obeys God and ends up in prison with the threat of death hanging over his head. And you understand that when you go back to Matthew 14, it says Herod wanted to put him to death, but he wouldn't. What was Herod afraid of? Herod was afraid of a popular uprising. Because that's how much people loved the truth-teller, John. 
So much that Herod, who had full authority as a dictator, was unwilling to wield the sword on John. Why? Because John was so right on and people knew it. And yet the one who was right on is now sitting in prison, languishing in loneliness. And he sends asking this question. Now, his circumstances may be the source of the question. But the second thing that may be the source of his question is expectations. Are you the Christ? Or do we look for someone else? Is John struggling with what the disciples of Jesus struggled with? The identity of the Messiah in the Old Testament is a warrior-like individual in many passages. In fact, John said when he comes, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, when he comes, he's going to lay his axe to the root of the tree. He will burn the tree with fire. Jesus comes on the scene. Is that what Jesus' public ministry looks like? See, what did John have? John had expectations that when Jesus comes, he's going to bring justice and establish his kingdom. John's disciples expected the same thing. So they come to him and say, Lord, when you set up your kingdom here, can I be at your right hand and my brother be at your left hand? Same thing is true every time Jesus Christ the Messiah speaks about his death on a cross. What does Peter say over my dead body? What is Peter struggling with? What are the disciples struggling with? What is John struggling with? They're struggling with unfulfilled expectations. They loved Christ ruling. They loved Christ miracle worker. They loved Christ confronting evil. What were they struggling with? They were struggling with Christ dying. They were struggling with being a follower of Christ and experiencing trouble and struggle. And I believe this. I believe that's John's struggle here. He's thinking when Jesus comes, he's going to lay the axe to the root of the tree of trouble and eliminate it. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't act like that. And John in his mind begins to think, are you the one? Now, I think the answer to the question is found in this passage. uh, Verse 22. He replied to the messengers that had come from John, Go back and report report to John what you have seen and heard. What is it that they're seeing and hearing? Notice what he says. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Now, any believer at the time of Christ who had any understanding of the coming of Messiah from the book of Isaiah would know that Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling those prophecies. And I'll give you the passages. The prophecies from Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 19. The prophecies in Isaiah from Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 10. And 61, 1. All refer to these statements. So what do we learn in this passage? Here's what we learn. Obedience to God can lead to difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances can cause doubt about the plan and purpose of God in the hearts of His children. Why? Because we tend to want to domesticate God, don't we? We want God to work in our lives in the way that we desire. And when God's working in our lives the way that we desire, we obey Him and everything turns out right. We want to domesticate God. Now, when I think about that, I think of the movie, The Little Mermaid. 
I know none of the guys want to admit that they've ever seen it, but it played in my house an enormous number of times. So I just, osmosis, that's how I got it. I never sat down and watched it, okay? In that movie, one of the central characters is, is a genie, right? And it, Aladdin, that's what I said. Just kidding, just kidding. That, that proves that I didn't watch Little Mermaid. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, in, in Aladdin, okay, thank you. I was trying to figure out how that worked, but I think I see a new movie coming. So, thank you, Jeremy. All right, in the movie with Aladdin, what happens? The princess interacts with Aladdin. Aladdin comes and says, I have all power. And not only do I have all power, I am at your disposal. You get three wishes. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Oh, the, the genie, yes, yes. You know what I'm saying. Okay? How many of us tend to approach God in that kind of a way? That we love serving God when God is doing what we want Him to do. But this may come to you as a surprise. God is not your genie. He does not exist to make your life fine. He exists to bring glory to Himself. And John was struggling with unmet expectations. John is struggling with difficult circumstances. And what is it doing? It is causing John to struggle in terms of faith. He is wrestling with doubt and disappointment. And the next thought that I want to share with you is this. The Savior, when He is confronted with our doubts, responds. He responds in this passage to our doubt with words of clarification and encouragement. He says to the disciples who have come from John the Baptist, you go to John, tell him what you were seeing. And he lists fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. What is Jesus doing? Here, I, I can tell you this. I can tell you what he's not doing with John the Baptist. He does not belittle John the Baptist. He does not rebuke him for having questions. Isn't that powerful? When you're struggling with your faith, you're experiencing difficult circumstances because of obedience, and it causes you to doubt, and you come to the Savior, what is His response? His response is to cast upon you and cast you upon the promises of God. I can tell you one thing that Jesus could have said to John. The way of the Christian experience is not an easy life. Jesus said to His disciples, in this world you will have struggle. It's part of the road living in a fallen world. But what does he say? But I have overcome the world. Folks, you're going to have times when you doubt God. The question I would ask to you is this. When you struggle, what promises will you cling to? Jesus flees to Scripture to answer John. He doesn't say, hey, you go to John and tell him to stop doubting. That's not what he does. He says, you go tell John, I'm doing this and this and this and this. And in John the Baptist's mind, as an astute student of the Word of God, is thinking, oh, okay, okay, okay. But Jesus is more than just a sovereign king, isn't he? He's also a savior. He comes humble and meek, so different than what his disciples expected, so different than what John expected. Folks, it is essential that we don't try to domesticate the work of God in our lives. It is essential that we don't treat God like a genie who meets our needs on demand. He doesn't. He doesn't. 
He will work through difficulty in your life. He will work through struggle in your life. He will work through unfair circumstances in your life. Every parent in this room has preached this to their children, right? The world's not fair. In response of Jesus to John, he says, John, I'm fulfilling this text. What's happening in your life is not unfair. It is, it is not right, but I have a plan. And I have a purpose that I'm going to work out in your life. So what is he doing? He gives him words of clarification and encouragement. Why? Because he wants to build John's faith. As a result, disappointment with God, especially for John, often leads to a deeper relationship with God. You know why? Because in the midst of your disappointments and struggles, you come to an end of yourself and your resources, and you go to God asking God for truth, for direction, for help, for comfort in your times of struggle. And when things are going fine in your life, what do you do? We tend to grow apathetic and mediocre in our relationship with God. The struggle draws John into a place that he would have never been. He is receiving words of encouragement and comfort that he couldn't hear. He knew these passages. Do you understand that? John knew these passages. But when his disciples come back and say to him, he is doing this and this and this and this. In John's mind, Jesus knows what he's going to be thinking about. That's the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Isaiah. And John's heart will begin to swell. The text doesn't even have to tell us John's response. You can predict it. When a child of God hears the promises of God in the midst of their doubt and struggle, their heart is deeply encouraged. Folks, that's what God wants to do for you today. In spite of what you're wrestling with, in spite of the doubts that are coming as a result of difficult circumstances, God wants to breathe the promises of His Word into your life. He will not dress you down and belittle you in your struggle. An honest question to God receives an honest and encouraging answer. And your relationship with Him will deepen as a result of disappointment. Isn't that the experience of Job? Job complains to God, God, what is going on in my life? God responds. Job's answer, if you slay me, I'll trust you. Moses hears the call of God. Doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. Wrestles with doubt, discouragement, fear. Things aren't going right. God begins to speak into his life. And Moses' doubts and discouragements are washed away. The last thought that I would like you to see this morning real quickly is this. Jesus, in verse 23, concludes this statement of Scripture by saying this. Here, tell John I'm doing this, 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 and this, and tell him this. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. On account of what? On account of what the ministry of Jesus is really like. John was beginning to fall away. Why? Because Christ wasn't really stepping to the plate and being the axe wielder and the fire thrower, right? That's what John expected. When he comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Remember this, Matthew? Three. What is John missing? Same thing the disciples are missing. He comes first to die. Second, he comes to rule. His first coming is to take care of our greater problem. What did the disciples and John think? Their issues were domestic issues. Jesus is saying, no, your issues aren't domestic. Your, your, your problem is an issue of the heart. You have sinned that needs to be paid for. I've come to take care of that problem. 
and then we'll take care of the other stuff later. Blessed is the man who does not fall away. The word in the Greek is scandalizo. We get our word scandal. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized. The idea here is the person who doesn't find Jesus to be a stick thrown between the legs that trips them. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? There were two responses to Jesus, weren't there? One from the broader population and one from the religious establishment. One from people who thought that their life was fine. To find that, you go over to verse 30. Verse, thir- or verse, um, verse, uh, verse 29 and, t- and 30. Notice what this says. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words. Now notice, all the people, even the worst. It's the idea here. The broader population and then the worst sorts of the broader population. When they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. What was the ministry of John? To show people their sin and their need of a Savior, their need to repent of their sin and trust Christ. The broader population heard the words of Christ and wasn't scandalized by Him. They didn't stumble over Him. They received Him. They saw their sin and repented of it. And when Jesus came speaking the message of John, they embraced Christ also. What about the religious leaders? Look at the next verse. But the Pharisees, and the word but just says there's a contrast here, the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purposes for them that were being revealed through Christ because they had not been baptized by John. Why weren't they baptized baptized by John? Because they refused to acknowledge their sin and repent of it and see their need for the coming Savior. Who was scandalized by Christ? Who is scandalized by Christ? Let me tell you who. Anyone who believes that a relationship with God is received as a result of human performance. Truly religious people are scandalized by Christ. Because a truly religious person thinks, I obtain a relationship with God by my performance, by what I do. It's not what the scripture says. You see, the tax collectors would never think they were going to get into heaven based on how they lived. But the Pharisees thought they could. And so when they heard a message of grace for sinners, what did they say about Jesus? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They were scandalized by grace and love and couldn't experience the blessing of Christ. Jesus says to John, blessed are those who are not falling away on account of me. My cross work is central. It is essential to a proper relationship with God. And so Jesus not only speaks words of clarification and encouragement to John, number four, Jesus confronts our doubt and calls us to deeper trust. John's struggling. Jesus says, go tell John, blessed is the person who is not scandalized by me, who isn't stumbled by me. Blessed is the person, therefore, that trusts me. And the word blessed, if you go back to Matthew 5, is the word happy is the one, right? Blessed is the one. So in the midst of his struggles, John admits, you know what? I'm really disappointed. Jesus fires back with words of comfort and encouragement. And then he issues this call to John. John, do not stumble. Folks, what does that mean? I think it means this. God does not tolerate doubt in the life of his children. He doesn't coddle it. He confronts it. 
And then he gives a challenge. Don't fall away. Don't take offense. Accept my ministry as it comes. And realize that the final verdict on your life, your eternal destiny, is in fact dependent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now folks, listen. If you are a born-again believer who has come to God seeing your sin and trusting in the shed blood of Christ, and then you face struggles, disappointment in how things are working out in your Christian experience, Jesus says to you, don't be scandalized. Don't fall away. I am your only hope. Trust me. If you can trust Christ with your eternal destiny, if you've been born again by the grace of God, you can look back in your life and say, there was a time when I saw my sin and I saw that my only hope was bound up in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Here's what Jesus is saying to you. If you can trust me with your eternal destiny, can't you trust me with your struggles today? That's what he's saying to John the Baptist. John, you could point to me and say, behold, John 1, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world, therefore he takes away mine. Jesus says to John in his struggle because of difficult circumstances, he says, John, don't fall away. Don't fall away. If you can trust me with your eternal destiny, you can trust me with the struggles that you're facing in your life today. Folks, if Jesus can handle your biggest problem, he can handle the daily stuff of your life. He doesn't want you to live in doubt. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith and trust in Christ brings rich blessings in life. Lack of faith brings God's judgment. To conclude, let me just give you these very simple thoughts by way of application. And it kind of flows out of what next, happens next in this passage. Jesus, in verse 24 after the messengers left, he begins to speak to the crowd about John. This is fascinating. He says, what did you go out into the desert to see? A weed or reed swayed by the wind. Did you go out to see someone who was fickle and undecided? The rhetorical answer is, uh, I don't think John was fickle and weak. Unclear in his message. Did you go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes? Someone who lived in luxury and was a bit soft, a pampered royal. Jesus says, no, those who wear expensive clothes indulge in luxury and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet, a man called by God. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, meaning he is the ultimate prophet par excellence. All the Old Testament prophets are leading up to him. Jesus says, yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. And then he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, 3 and verse 1. And then verse 28, he says this. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now that is a statement that had just to absolutely capture the attention of the audience. Of all those born of women, none is greater than John. What is he saying? He's saying, I am going to pay to John right now the ultimate compliment. He has been a faithful servant. He is struggling, but he has been a faithful servant. But, of all, but, but the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Even the greatest prophet is less important than a lowly member 
of God's family. Here's the question. How can that be? How can that be? How can the least in the church age be greater than John the Baptist when John was the greatest ever born? And the answer is found in this. John was the last one pointing to the cross of Christ. John had the closest proximity to the cross of any Old Testament prophet. For that reason, John was greater than all the ones that came before. And he was an incredibly faithful servant. Falling after the cross, the least in the kingdom, Jesus says, has a greater privilege than John. Why? Because John anticipated the cross, but we know from Matthew chapter 14 that John dies in the middle of Jesus' public ministry. The disciples of Jesus will see his death. Folks, the greatest privilege in life, the greatest privilege in life, is to know the very simple truth that Jesus Christ died to pay the price for your sins. That eternal life is not found by being a Pharisee, a religious person. It is found by placing faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Savior, on Calvary's cross. This morning, I would cry out to you and say this. If you've never trusted Christ, He is your only hope. And as a Christian, the great privilege that you and I have is to say to people, there is a Savior who died on Calvary's cross to pay the price for your sin. Trust Him. And to everyone who has trusted Him, here's what we can say to each other. If He can cover the base of our eternal destiny, if He can forgive us for all our sins and failures, certainly He can deal with the struggles of our life that we are facing today. In your life, crave the approval that matters most. The assessment of John from the Pharisees, if you go down to verse 33 is, John came neither eating or drinking wine, but you say he has a demon. What was the assessment of John the Baptist from the religious establishment? He's a reject. He's a reject. What does Jesus say? There is none greater than John. Folks, do you understand something? You can get the approval of the world and lose the approval of Christ. You can lose the approval of the world. They can call you what they want to call you and give you a disastrous consequence. Look, John is going to lose his head. He's going to die because he spoke the truth too clearly. But when Jesus assesses the situation, he looks at John and he says, of those born of women, none is greater than John. But the religious establishment said of John, he's to be discarded and ignored. He's a bit of a crazy man. But what did John get? John got the approval that mattered most. Folks, crave this approval more than anything else in your life. When you struggle, I give you this thought. Cling to the promises of God. If you were deserted and let down by friends or parents, the psalmist says this, though mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Jesus says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are heartbroken and confused by your present circumstances, Psalm 34 gives you a promise. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. He is near to those who are broken hearted and comforts those who are crushed in spirit. If you're struggling in your workplace thinking, how will I meet my needs? Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. 1 Peter 5.7, cast your cares upon Him. He cares for you. If in the physical realm you have had a, a, an unfavorable diagnosis recently, Romans chapter 8 says, 
He causes all things to work together for good. If you are struggling like John with unbelief because your circumstances are overwhelming your heart and causing you to say, is it worth it following God? Here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, if we become faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What a glorious promise. If you're disappointed at your own failure, if you are sure that you don't deserve heaven, you're in a good place. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If, if as a Christian, you say, Tim, I have sin in my life. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Folks, in the path of obedience to God, you will have times of struggle. You will face disappointment. Jesus comes and speaks words of comfort and encouragement and will not tolerate unbelief. Why? He loves you too much. He's just like the parent that comes to their child when the child says, I'm not sure if you love me. And the parent expresses all the things that they do to the child to assure them that I will never let you go. For John the Baptist, that's what Jesus is doing here. And if you do not know Christ the Savior today, I think this passage is clear. Don't be scandalized by Christ. If what you're struggling with is admitting that you're a sinner, admit it. Sense the calling of the Spirit of God to come to full repentance and acknowledge your sin before God and trust in His shed blood as your only source of hope. And He will change your life gloriously and powerfully forever. My guess is that once the followers of John got back to him and told him of the words from Christ, quotations from the Old Testament, that John sat back and said, okay, okay. Pointing to Jesus was the right thing and the confession of my heart is I believe in him. That is the confession of the heart of someone who struggled, who at some level experienced failure, and yet was assured and affirmed by God and in the end, Jesus could say, of all those before him, none is greater. None exceeds him. None exceeds him. John comes back to a place of glorious and powerful faith in Jesus. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Father.